Welcome to the Leadership Pulse, where we talk about all things healthcare culture, burnout, leadership, and I'm your co-host, Jessica Zampetri. And I'm Becky Wolf, also one of the co-hosts. And with us, we have Brady Steinick. Brady is a repeat guest. Uh, if you haven't listened to his first episode, which is episode three of the podcast, go back and listen to that. You'll hear more of his bio, hear his passion around culture and investing in people. And so far, it is our most listened to podcast. So I highly recommend you go back and listen to that. Uh, after the show, Brady and uh, we actually had so much great conversation with Brady. So we wanted to invite him back to talk about some things that he's super passionate about. Brady, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me back. Really appreciate it. This is fun. Yeah, absolutely. So we wanted to dive in um, after the show last time we were talking about value-based healthcare and in a primary care setting and, you know, just a lot of conversation that came out of that. So I'd love for you to touch in, you know, just dive in right away, right out the gate and just start talking about value-based healthcare and how that has maybe shifted mindset into uh, your healthcare world or what that's looked like in your practice. Yeah, sure. Um, Maybe I'll just start by being really broad in general. What is, what is value-based care? Um, really, when you look at United States healthcare over the last 20, 30 years, the the main way of, of paying for it and the way it's been organized is in something with what's called a fee-for-service model. And I try to come up with as many analogies for it as I can. The most recent one was um, kind of like an assembly line. Do you guys ever... Have you ever seen that really classic old I Love Lucy episode yes. where her and Ethel are on a yeah, assembly line and there's chocolates coming through and the chocolates are coming through faster than they can handle them. Mm-hmm. And the boss says, if you don't handle all these chocolates and wrap them and then you lose your job. And so, and they come fast and, and it's hilarious because she's shoving them in her shirt and in her hat and they're eating a bunch and there's a bunch that they throw on the floor. And, and I, I kind of was thinking about it and I'm like, you know, even though that's really funny, like, that's kind of been what healthcare is. Doctors are be, have been paid to do office visits with no consideration for what happens in that visit. And so the care doesn't have to be high quality. Doc, the only way for doctors and for healthcare systems to create a profit enough to stay in business is to see more patients. But especially in my world in primary care, trying to shove more patients into less time is completely... Uh, adverse to what I'm trying to do, which is to take good care of people. Um, and so this this system of rewarding us for more volume, but not for quality, um, I think has just been a horrible disservice to our country. And the data shows it, right? Um, we're the richest country in the world and we have what the 30th or 40th best uh, outcomes. We have horrible infant mortality. We have bad chronic care management. Um, of course, our cost is like six, eight, 10 X what other, you know, first world countries are. Um, it's horrific. And so, um, really when you look at how to transform this, the word value has been really the catchphrase that comes to the surface. And, you know, I, have kind of equated value to saying, um, you know, what is value? And the easiest way is in a very simple math problem, which is quality over cost. So if you increase the quality and lower the costs, you've created something more valuable, right? Even if it's an item on the shelf at Target, um, higher quality and lower cost means you got a good value. Same with healthcare. If we can increase the quality and lower the costs, 
um, we're going to create better value for the money that this country spends on our healthcare. And um, what's great about it is that the payment model is changing. Um, we're, we're not seeing, we're seeing less and less of that fee for service chocolate factory model. Um, and when you look at where we're going, and to be quite honest, kind of on the front line of it here at Community Healthcare is um, we're looking at it. I, the other analogy I thought about was that of a shepherd. So if you think of a shepherd with a big flock of sheep, is that guy trying to trying to do 1,500 chocolates an hour? No. He's compensated for how many of those sheep he keeps healthy, how many of them that he can invest in to grow, how many of them he can individualize the care for so that they are their best selves. And that's what we're evolving to, um, increasing the quality, lowering the cost. Um, at Community Healthcare, we've evolved into a f almost always almost a fully capitated model. So that's completely opposite of fee-for-service. Our doctors are paid, at least in our Medicare population, a certain amount of dollars per patient in their panel per month up front. So now the doctor is not being compensated for doing chocolates. We're not going, we're not paid to see 30 visits a day and do um, inadequate care. If we see less patients that day, but we're able to do what's right for them, keep them in their homes, manage their chronic conditions, keep them out of the emergency room unnecessarily, avoid, uh, avoid hospitalization if appropriate, um, we're increasing the quality and lowering the cost, that at the end of the day is what we really should be being compensated for. And so this is really taking um, healthcare to the next level and it's, it's catching fire nationally. Um, we are not the only value-based care provider, even in our, even in our market here in Northeast Ohio anymore. There's, there's a national movement. Even you know CMS Medicare is moving toward capitated payments to physicians, um, bundled payments, um, mandating that we take less on the front side for fee for service and more on the back end for quality. So um, I think that there's only good that can come from that as we go forward. So really long-winded answer, but that is what value-based care is in a, in a nutshell. It's a large <laughs> nutshell. Yeah, it's huge. <laughs> now, what were your difficulties getting community healthcare within the value-based platform and all of that? Well, for us, the story is unique because we were very fortunate and blessed to have a founder who wanted to do this and created the mission statement of the company to do this before it was cool. Um, he founded the company in the mid 80s in the middle of a lot of the transition to this fee for service era that we've been in. And our mission statement is kind of like the value based manifesto. Um, so over the years, we've made a lot of decisions and initiatives within our company that in a fee for service model looked really dumb from the outside because it wasn't in, you know, wasn't to maximize that fee for service, um, model. It was to do what was right for the patient and to take care of our communities. And it was, so that was kind of like managing the population and doing value-based population health with that. We weren't even being incentivized or paid to do it, but it was the right thing to do. And so for me as the second leader to step into his succession, um, it's crazy because we're just continuing and trying to further our mission and our culture. 
and now the 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 rest of medicine has caught up to actually kind of um, incentivize us and reimburse us for doing that. And so um, that's why it's really exciting. It's a really exciting time for community healthcare because we've been able to kind of really enhance what we already do and we're actually being compensated for it now. So it's putting us in, the, in, a, in a position to be successful. That being said, it's not easy. It's still not easy. Um, you know, still all of our docs were trained in a system where it was beat into us to see more patients every day. Um, and you weren't going to get paid unless you brought a patient into the office um, for, for, for reasons that they probably didn't need to be brought in. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I've got kids to feed. I've got college to pay for. Or, that's what your docs are thinking. And so it's been really a huge culture shift, even in our culture, to get our docs to think differently. And we, we, we talk about it every month in our meetings. Um, what does it look like to do what was right for the patient in the right time and place, not uh, irrespective of how we're getting paid for it? Because again, remember, we're getting paid on the first of the month. So we already got paid to take care of this patient. That's what's really cool is the payment model is incentivizing us to do the right thing. If I can take care of this patient on a phone call, on a video visit, or with the, like we talked about in my last podcast, um, the highly functioning team that we've put in that's got nurse practitioners and RNs and behavioral health, if we're able to utilize this team, then we're doing a, a better service for our patients. We've already been compensated for it, and it's a better use of our resources because then we're opening up office time and office space. Limited, finite resources are open now for people that really needed to be seen in the office, for people that are that, that are really sick that we're trying to keep out of the hospital. So it's a huge culture shift for your docs. It's a huge way of thinking differently, even in a model, model like ours where we've always been that way. Um, again, until the payment model changed to incentivize it and reimburse for it and compensate for it, it you really don't. You kind of have one foot in one side and one foot in yeah. the other. And so we've kind of taken that foot out of fee for service and jumped in, cannonballed into the uh, capitated pool and so you're right. It's a huge, it's a soft, it's a soft leadership type thing. It's not, yes, we have processes around it, but it's also getting our docs and our providers to think differently. And um, that's a heavy lift. We, t we talk about it ad nauseum every month. Yeah. Subconscious and conscious, just training that they've had. Habits, right? Like the habit. So of, many habits, yeah. autopiloted habits. Exactly. And it's getting people in the middle of the heat of the day when they're stressed, when they're running behind, when there's three patients in the waiting room to say, okay, wait a minute. I don't need to do this the way I already and always did it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's like retraining. Like you said, it's like just the habits that they're so used to, it's ingrained in them. Now, I yeah. have a question about insurance in this case, because I know that's, you know, uh, for fee-for-service, it's different per insurance, how much you're getting paid. So can you speak to that a little bit, how it's different with value-based care? Yeah, so it really ha it, it changes the relationship between providers and payers. You know, when it, it, in a fee-for-service model, when I'd sit down with an insurance company to do our contracts, or my predecessor would, it felt like it was always fighting over pennies. It was always okay. We need extra. We need this much more money for a level three visit or a level four visit or for preventative care, and and it was always just fighting. Um, in value based care, it's a lot more collaborative. Um, 
we are at what's called full risk across our Medicare line of business, which means that all of the dollars that Medicare, that Medicare allocates to our patients are actually given to us through a partnership through a company we have uh, with a company called Agilon. And uh, so it's no longer fighting for pennies. It's helping each other have the data we need to be able to utilize those resources to the fullest for the patient, um, which has been really refreshing. The insurance companies sit down with data. They tell us, hey, Brady, um, community health care um, has 55 female patients that we think need to have a mammogram that we don't think have had one. So here's their names. And then we have built a structure where my people go find those names and we can look at those patients and and call them and say, hey, you know, mammograms are really important to prevent breast cancer deaths. And can we get you scheduled for one? Um, it's giving us cost data and saying, hey, you guys are doing great at keeping your patients out of the ER, but maybe you've had more people in the hospital this year. Here's the names of all the patients that have had multiple hospital readmissions. Maybe you can reach out to them with your teams. Um, so it's been extremely more collaborative, which I think is wonderful because we're not sitting there fighting. We're actually collaborating on what's best. I call it a triple win. In this model, the insurance company still is able to function and make the profit that they need to continue to have be in business. We are given the resources we need to take care of the patients and the patients get better care. It's a tri yeah. I, call, I love those triple wins. Um, you know, you don't see that in business or in healthcare a lot, and that's what we're moving to. So that's really refreshing. Now, in your opinion, because some would say that trying to do value-based care in a surgical specialty versus primary care is harder on their end. And then I've heard it the other way, where primary care is harder because you're managing all of these chronic diseases that U.S. has quite a few of them. In your opinion... Where does that fall? You know, I think it's apples and oranges based on what you said, because the primary care doc is now being um, given responsibility over the entire uh, con continuity of care across the whole healthcare spectrum. So the issue with that is I have to be as a primary care doctor that's being paid to manage my entire flock, right? If I'm the shepherd, um, then I need to know what's happening to my sheep when they're not in my flock. And if they're going to a place that's going to do a lot of unnecessary care, a lot of extra cost, a lot of unnecessary testing, a lot of things that maybe the patient doesn't want or need, I need to know that because that's going to come back to me. And so it's, it's about having collaborative conversations with all of your colleagues in the area, which, in fact, uh, the other practice that's with Agile in our in our market and I have been having very collaborative conversations with specialists because they're a total fee-for-service world, right? They, they, aren't, they aren't always compensated for quality. They're just, the best that they can do is to see more patients. So it's, it can be a tug of war. You're totally right in that aspect. Um, but I think the specialists kind of, their eyes light up when we tell them, look, like, we're only gonna, we only wanna send you people you really need to see we want to have great co co collaboration and communication with you. It gets back to why you went to med school to do great care. And so we do get a lot of buy-in from our colleagues that are specialists um, to try to help us. And we tell them, look, I, I can't tell you how to do surgery or cardiology or nephrology or hematology. I'm a primary care doctor, but so I need you to do what you're good at doing. I just need you to be collaborative with me and, and doing what's best for patients. And, we usually get a pretty good response from that. Mm -hmm.
usually. So there's been some not so good responses. How oh, yeah, did those go? Had one yesterday where, it, the, and I can almost script it for you. When when a doctor is for, when a doctor that's really embedded in fee for service is prevented, presented with changing the model of care to value, there's several things that they say um, that doesn't apply to me because um, my practice or my specialty is different. It doesn't fit into that mold. Um, here's the big one: your data is faulty. Um, they always attack your data. Um, and my docs do that. I do. If you see your name at the bottom of a list, oh, that must be wrong. I'm a better doctor. <laughs> um, uh, 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 the system is against us to do this. That's a big one that we get. Um, uh, I've always done it this way, which I hate. Like, well, what we've always done really doesn't work, buddy. Um, so in all of our docs, you can walk through community healthcare and they can laugh because sometime in the 2010 decade when we were really starting to attack this, all of us probably said those same things. Yeah. Um, so we hear that a lot. Uh, and it's just basically comes down to, look, man, like this is here, whether we like it or not, and mm -hmm. you're going to have to adapt or die. And we always joke though, that when you see your name on a bad list of quality outcomes, it's the five stages of grief, right? You get angry, <laughs> you deny it, <laughs> you bargain with it. <laughs> and so you finally come to acceptance. <laughs> Oh, that's yeah. a good one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. all do. And I love that you highlighted that, though, because I think just um, in medical culture in general, there's just we've always done it this way mentality um, that kind of keeps us in our old ways. And even just the training of fee for service, that's a great example of that as well. Um, I wanted to ask you, too, with your partnership with Agilon, that's something I think you highlighted in the last episode as well as like a partnership over the last year. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, and this is the part that's interesting nationally. So Agilon is a uh, public company. They were private when we originally partnered with them. They went public uh, in the spring of 2021 on Wall Street. Um, so uh it's a very interesting company because it was founded by a guy whose mother uh, got cancer at a very young age. And as a teenager, he watched her bounce through this fee-for-service system. Um, and of course, um, it was extremely impactful on him. Unfortunately, she passed away. And he came up through the finance world, um, ended up in venture capital and on Wall Street, and uh, had a special interest in healthcare and started to really delve into a lot of different models, went out to California and visited with Kaiser and some of these other um, value-based care and, and capitated arrangements and figured out like, look, like we need to do this differently. And there are, there are multiple venture, that's the thing, there's venture capital, there's huge companies very interested in this value-based care transformation that this country is undergoing. And it used to be only, you know, with venture capital and Wall Street firms just picking up specialists because maybe they were a lot more financially um, lucrative. But now there's a huge interest in primary care. And Agilon Health started out as a company that wanted to support primary care doctors in transitioning to value and taking great care of their patients. And it, it's in the Medicare space that they live. Um, and basically what it is is that the med again, as I mentioned before, Medicare, the contracts that Agilon is able to negotiate, um, the all of the resource dollars allocated to a doctor's patients are given to the Agilon partnership with that doctor. And if we are able to manage the patient well 
um, keep, take care of their chronic conditions, keep them out of the hospital unnecessarily, and save, again, high value with low cost, save, ca- uh, save money for the patient's care, uh, us and Agilon are able to share in that cost savings. And so what it does is that it enables us to have resources to um, invest in more care. Uh, we have, again, a very uh, highly intensive, highly functioning team that's really a lot more, uh, a lot larger and, and more uh, highly involved than we could ever have afforded to do before because of those resources. And so it's, it's kind of putting what you do on steroids. Um, and Agilon's grown exponentially. There's an asymptotic curve that they're following. Um, just since 2017, when they were founded, uh, up to about a half a million seniors in our country now are uh, their primary care doctor is with Agilon, and with a with. And again, what what Agilon is also interesting in, about and unique is that they do not buy physician practices. They don't own one ounce of community healthcare. They're just partners. So that's the other thing that is that separates them. There's multiple other. Uh, large venture capital groups and even Amazon, if you look at the news, just buying primary care. And that's a lot more capital intensive, obviously, if you're owning doctors. Um, but with Agilon's mar- uh, model of partnership, it's a lot more less capital intensive for them. So they're able to be nimble and grow faster. And so, again, there's a lot of models. A lot of different companies are trying to take different angles on what this looks like. Uh, that's the model that we've chosen. We like our independence. We're fiercely independent. We think that that's one of our big strengths so that we can continue to kind of um, control our own destiny and able to be nimble and change things. There's not, you know, we don't answer to 37 attorneys and 16 different bosses over us. We're small, we're nimble. If we think something makes sense to do for our patients or for our business, we can do it. And so um, staying independent was huge for us and Agile allows us to do that while also giving us resources to provide better care. And so for us, that was the way we went. Many other people are, are go ahead and in and, and the other model where they're being purchased or acquired, um, you know, it's just everybody's doing something different. Control your own destiny. Tell me a little bit more. <laughs> well, you know, I think Becky's statement of doing things how we've always done it is extremely embedded in healthcare. I'm sure you guys have talked about that a lot and with your other guests on this podcast, and we cannot survive at all by clinging to those old ways. And the bigger, in my experience, the bigger you are and the harder, the the larger your healthcare system is, the slower you are to change. Mm -hmm. And we want to be the opposite of that. Um, uh, So at community healthcare, we're small, we're nimble. We pride ourselves on that. We have a homegrown management uh, uh, force that, that is, has been raised in our culture of, hey, when we decide we're to do something, we're going to go do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, one ha- no one can tell us no, except ourselves. And yeah. so, as, you know, if, as long as we're staying true to our mission of doing things that are better for patient care, um, I think we're going to be okay. And so for us, it's about having the freedom and the ability and the independence to do those things. Yeah. So with your partnership with Agilon, how much involvement do they have then? I know just talking with other healthcare providers, that's a concern with equity, private equity companies is how much involvement they actually have in the leadership decisions. Right. Right. And because they're partners, they really cannot force us or tell us to do anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what's great about it is it's it's a collaboration. Mm -hmm. It's a partnership. So we come up with uh, initiatives and decisions together, not 
there's no dictator. There's no, I'm not telling them what to do. They're not telling me what to do. We do things together. Um, and because they're partners with us, they're intensely interested in helping us take better care of our patients. We're all incentivized to do that based on the contract model. Um, and they, you know, the thing is, we also have a long-term contract with them because they want to build long-term collaborative, uh, healthy relationships with their partners. And so, um, yeah, is it perfect? No, we, there's times where we disagree. And I think that's good because the times that we have had disagreements has been really great opportunities for us to come to new understandings or come up with even better ideas than we had before. So those healthy kind of discussions of, hey, I think it should be done this way. I think we should do this um, have been really fruitful. They've been extremely collaborative and professional. Again, um, it's been a, it's been a good thing. And, you know, the amount of time we've invested in that relationship is starting to bear fruit. And I think they'd say so as well. Um, that, But that's what's nice. You know, I, there's another large group in our area who did do the acquisition model where they were bought out by an extremely large national company. And um, to be quite honest, some of their docs are now coming to us mm-hmm. to say, look, they're telling me what to do and I don't like it. Mm-hmm. And I like, I kind of like your model of being independent. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're seeing that potentially this partnership model is probably a little bit better way to go. Yeah. And through our last podcast and this podcast, um, it's clear that you guys have really honed in on your mission and vision and aligned everything there and owning your own destiny. So if you had it all your way as CEO of Community Healthcare, what does that future look like? You know, I've I've gotten in trouble before trying to predict things. <laughs> none of us can. None of us can ever. None of us know the future. Um, but what I can really foresee happening is the growth of community healthcare, but in a way that you know it would be really easy for us with our resources and with how scalable our model is to just grow at a at an exponential clip, just like Agile is. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with that is, and I think you guys, this is the point of your podcast, is culture. Like, how do you retain your soul if you grow too fast? We, we, we kind of feel like the special secret sauce for us is our culture and in, tra- in, in training our people to know that mission of doing what's right and loving the person across from you, not worrying about all the, everything else. And, you know, we're all, always fighting to maintain that and to keep that. And we're always fighting for us to, you know, it's so easy to just go off and make other decisions for other other reasons. And so when we acquire a new doctor or when we hire a new physician or acquire a practice, you know, we want them to become part of community health care. We don't want community health care to kind of be watered down into all these subcultures of people that we've acquired. And so... Yeah, could it be easy for us to grow at an exponential pace just for the sake of growth? Great, yeah, it could, but that's not what we're interested in doing. We want to. We really feel like to change healthcare in our market, we need to retain our culture. So we're going to grow very strategically and intentionally with with physicians and providers and communities that get what we're doing and want to be part of it. Um, so I can't really predict. A lot of times, it's people coming to us saying we see what we're doing and we want to be a part of it. And in that case, the answer is, okay, sure. Let's talk about that. So 
I can't really, our, our business model and our acquisition model has never been, okay, I want that practice in that town. We're going to do this in 2024. We're going to go here in 25. We're going to do, we really want to stay away from that because again, those places or the things that we're looking at may not end up being part of our culture and our mission and vision. And then that gets us in trouble. And so I, I, I definitely see growth in a big state and a big scale, just in a big picture kind of way. I think community healthcare will be bigger, taking care of more communities. Um, I can't tell you which ones those are or exactly how big will be, because again, I don't want to pigeonhole us into something that might compromise our, our culture or our mission. Yeah. Yeah. So that organic growth seems really important to maintain the culture that you've built. You worked really hard on building. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. You can't lose that. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. I'm going to take like a little bit of a pivot here because you're a CEO of the company. You're still practicing and you own a Dela Medical Spa in Canton. Um, so yeah. the question can come up sometimes is how do you do all of that without feeling burnout? You know, burnout, I think, comes from, I don't know, I, I do a lot. I have a very busy schedule. I have five children. Mm -hmm. I practice. I practice three days a week uh, in my office in Louisville. I, uh, I I have the administrative role that I have as CEO. Uh, the spa thing has been really a cool opportunity on the side. My wife runs that mostly, um, but I do go there and treat patients, and it's fun. It's refreshing. It's a totally different angle than primary care. Uh, it's, so it's been really fun to do. We've trained a lot of other providers to do stuff with us at the spa, so it's not just me. Um, it's a lot less overwhelming that way. Um, for me, I'm not burned out because I just love what I do. I get to get up every day and and go at it and go for it. And um, you know, I, I've really worked on my personal health, I um, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Um, that was a, it's always evolving. Um, there have been times when my team and my wife will tell you that I have been heavy and in a burnout type situation. And I think that happens to all of us. And you have to pull yourself out of that and say, okay, what do I need for myself that I'm not doing right now? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's my responsibility to be the best person, the best Brady I can be for others. Um, I have a responsibility to my, to the Lord, to my family and to the company to be the best that I can be. And, if I'm not doing that, then that to me is a moral failure that, I, you know, I, I, that's not an option. And so um, I, I'm really blessed to have an amazingly high functioning team around me. I can say that this is what I do on a daily basis I, is not because of me at all. Um, I, I have a huge, uh, huge support of extremely awesome people in every area of my life that, again, and I can't take credit for any of that. They, they're people that love me and, and love our company and love our family and, and want to support what we're doing. Um, I have wonderful people at community healthcare. Our team is so highly functioning and so healthy. We've instituted giant principles like we've talked about before. Um, so they've all seen that we really do want what's best for each other. Um, at home, my wife is a saint on earth. Uh, she, she manages five children and me. So that's like six kids. Um, <laughs> she, she does it with a smile on her face and, and bouncing her step and she looks beautiful the whole time she does it. Uh, so I can't, if I, if I didn't have her, I wouldn't be able to do anything. Uh, mm -hmm. My office in Louisville is amazing. Um, we've been really intentional to build a great team there. Um, just 
love that they, they, they're just there for patients. Our patients mm -hmm. love them. And as a team where, again, I can't do any of that. None of us, if you're going to do value-based care, that's the other thing that's hard to train people in is you can't do it yourself. Mm -hmm. yeah. you, have, you have to have a team. We have amazingly high functioning, brilliant nurse practitioners, uh, care managers, my office staff, my manager, and that's in every office at community healthcare. It really is. Um, so yeah, there's no, there's no credit taking from me. I'm not the one doing all this. There's, there's, I like to do a lot of things. And I think I, I'm the one that sometimes makes it worse for everybody because I'm the one coming in like a hurricane and blowing up their day because I'm, I'm behind schedule and stuff. So I, I think I'm the one that even holds them back sometimes. Yeah, I think critical <laughs> things you mentioned there are self-awareness, knowing your personality, what helps you thrive, and building team around you that's willing to collaborate in a lot of different areas. It's not just at work, but it's at home, too. And having both spaces kind of coincide together is what's setting you up for success. And I love hearing that. The research all shows that, too, as far as building collaborative teams and self-awareness towards really preventing burnout. And it's a systemic change. It's not just an isolation so I appreciate you elaborating on all of that because it's incredibly yeah, helpful. It's, yeah. and, it's, and it's hard to get there because, you know, we, especially in medical training, you're trained to do everything yourself. And mm -hmm. that's the other thing we're trying to break with all of our providers. And again, with me personally, I I feel like I've come a long way in, in being able to collaborate better with teams and not taking everything on myself and, um, so yeah, it's it's always evolving. We're we're never never at the finish line. It's it's a, it's always a journey. Yeah, and I mean, I can hear like the pride and sense of responsibility you have in your voice of like the self responsibility of being your best self, so that you can show up in all of these other functions for other people. Mm -hmm. Going off of that, what is the legacy that you want to leave, family, life, career wise? Oh wow! Well, you guys got deep on it here. <laughs> You didn't know this um, was going to be like this, huh? <laughs> no, no, we're talking about venture capital firms taking over healthcare. Um, <laughs> so, no, for me, I, I, if you, if I think of my life, at the, if I think of what I want people to say about me at the end of my life, I think the first is number one priority in my life is my relationship with Jesus, and you know, I think it's in Matthew when, or no, I'm sorry, not Matthew, uh, Paul, when Paul says. You know, I, or yeah, it is in Matthew when Jesus says, you know, the the servant that was able to multiply what Jesus, what, what he was given and mm -hmm. to give it back to the Lord. And he, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, if if I can meet my maker and, and see Jesus and he says that to me, my life will have been a success. Um, so that's my first priority. Um, whatever, if I'm blessed with anything, the goal is to, multiply it and give it back to the Lord, not to keep it for myself, or to, but to give it to others. Um, number two, I, I hope that at the end of my life, my wife can say that I was a good husband and that I, that I supported her relationship with Jesus and her growth as a person um, and her um, ability to live the best life that she was supposed to live. Um, number three, I hope that my children can say that I was a loving father and that I was did the best I could for them. I, every day I'm like, my gosh, I failed again as a parent today. I think, I think it's so easy to get in that failure mindset as a parent. And I think I've, my wife and I talk about just keep showing up every day. You're going to make mistakes, but keep showing up for your kids. And we do that. I try to coach every little league team I can. I'm in everything I can be at. 
Um, and then number four, when you move into professional life, I hope that community healthcare is something totally different than it is now. Um, again, I, I'm, I'm partial and I'm biased, but the heart that we have to take care of people and the processes on the other side that we have in order to carry it out, I think is very unique and pretty successful. And so I would love for community healthcare to not just be changing healthcare in Northeast Ohio, but nationwide. And it's pretty cool to, with a national partner like Agilon and with other partnerships we're in, I think we have an opportunity to do that. Again, I wanna do it strategically in a way that's not too fast, but in a way that can really help people get better care. Um, and so I hope that, yeah, my those are my priorities. And I'm, if I can, if I was able to do that, I think it'd be amazing. I, I don't know if it's a tall order, it's a lot, but I think if we don't strive for that kind of stuff, we're not going to, we don't have any chance of getting to it. So I, I hope someday if that's my legacy, that would be great. Yeah. That's, that's like a mic drop moment right there. That's amazing. <laughs> you know what Stephen Covey says in, in the seven habits of highly effective people, he starts the whole book of imagine your funeral and picture what people are going to say about you. And mm -hmm. yep. that, changed, that changed my life. I'm like, Oh, yeah. What, yeah. Are they say about me? what do I want them to say? And what would they say right now versus what do I want them to say? So, yeah, yeah because, <laughs> because then like the flip side question of that is what would be the pain if you didn't achieve all of those four priorities? Right. And that's what drives you. I think I, I, mm -hmm. uh, if you don't think you're on track for any of those, then it's like, okay, I need to get my stuff together. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah. The awareness of today versus what you really want at the end kind of a thing. Yeah. The vision, you have such a strong vision and that's been present from day one since I've met you. Um, so it's, it's cool to see it. And I think that um, it's nice to have a picture of what healthy teams can look like and where medicine can head. Um, so we certainly appreciate your time. No problem. Yeah. We had a couple conversations here at work the other day about, um, you know, we're not perfect, but we're trying and, you know, mm -hmm. Working together and collaborating is messy. Um, emotions get involved. Um, you know, people's feelings are out there because they're trying. They're showing up every day trying to do their best and misunderstandings happen. And, you know, leadership is not easy. And again, even like I said, with parenting, it, it, can, it happens at work, too, is just keep showing up. Keep yeah. we tell our people like, hey, just keep trying. We'll get there. We're not perfect. We're not claiming to be. Um, but we hope that we can get better all the time. So. Yeah. One of my favorite phrases is practice makes progress. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Not perfect. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's I, great. I think whenever you're dealing in a people business, you have to expect messiness mm -hmm. because people are emotional um, just by nature. And especially when it's in healthcare where we care so much, we care so deeply. Do you see that a lot? when you're training healthcare providers that it's a little more emotionally charged than in yes. other industries? So healthcare and teachers. <laughs> so teachers mm. is the other education is the other thing where outcomes for them of what they see in the kiddo or when they see in their patient of what they want or see that the team could be, that is, it's heartbreaking for them to see sometimes that they're not there. But if you think about it in giant terms, there's a lot of nurturers, like nurture guardians, guardian nurturers in these fields because they care deeply about people on the day to day. 
Um, so it is the people pleasing tendencies, perfectionisms that are really, really high in those populations of people and those personalities. So it's helping them realize that if it's even not this year that you're going to see a drastic change, you made an impact in that person somehow. Um, and just Mm -hmm. keeping it in the present for them of you are making an impact, even if it's not the one you want or think you should be making. Yeah. And I think that like ties into that saying where people overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in three. And if like, if you think about it in those terms, like we all do, like, especially with growth, like we think we can be so far ahead Mm -hmm. and then we get into like perfectionism, like we didn't make it. But if we think in track of like three year timeframes, it's a totally different story. Yeah. Yeah. I said that to our team the other day. It's funny you just said that because, uh, I meet with our care managers and, and they have the unenviable task of dealing with the sickest of the sick of our patients. Mm-hmm. And I think that I was sensing a lot of burnout and a lot of a dissatisfaction from them in the room, just because I think you don't see those outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. They're, these are chronic conditions and chronically ill people that aren't going to get better. And so they're not seeing the fruit of their labor. And I said, look, you can't tie your competence into those outcomes, mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. you process and the progress mm-hmm. is where you get some some wins, but you're not going to get that huge win of, I, I fixed yeah. something. You know, like it's sometimes I envy surgeons because they can see a problem, fix a problem, yay, and yeah. get some self-satisfaction from that. But mm-hmm. if I just manage your blood pressure and it's still normal, okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And I mean, that's definitely the reasons why like my surgeons got into surgery. They were instant gratification people, yeah. which is also interesting because you were instant gratification, but you still spent like 12 to 15 years in school. There's nothing instant about that. (laughs) Um, But I imagine too, on like the chronic care patients that don't get better right away, there's probably like a mental health aspect to managing their care that while it's not as tangible, I'm sure it improves that if they're managing it efficiently. Yeah. We've, we've, and that's why we've tried to integrate behavioral health in our offices and in our practices because, you know, we've found that just giving the medications, they might be the appropriate meds that are meant to help that condition. But if the patient's not on board or hasn't changed their lifestyle or is not in a good place mentally, it's not going to work. Yeah. Very, very much. Because you deal with a lot of Medicare, Medicaid patients, right? Yes. And so in the primary care section, do you find any issues with the chronic care management and the cost of prescription drugs? Oh, gosh, yeah. I think that's actually the hill I think I want to try to die on next <laughs> is uh, is pharmacy. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we, the example here recently for us is that there's we've had a couple of cardiologists come educate us on heart failure. And there's four real medication pillars that every heart failure patient should probably be on in order to increase their lifespan and decrease their hospitalization. And unfortunately, two of those four medications are newer, great medications. They're new. They've been developed for this problem. They're showing great outcomes, but because they're new, they're branded and they're expensive. And my Medicare patients can't afford any of them. And so back to the contract model, if we're at full risk, meaning that if all of those dollars are in me and Agilon's control anyway, then why are we charging the patient a copay? Mm-hmm. 
if, if those resources are coming from us, then if I want my patient to be on that, I'm paying for it anyway out of that allocation that Medicare gave us. Why can't I give my patient those medications? So I, I think I've got a couple of meetings coming up next week because I'm like, like somebody's some kind of common sense has to prevail here. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's actually like a really good point. Does the prescription pharmacy model like play into this value based care? Has it yet? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of hasn't yet. And that's what I mean by that is that right now my patients still got to go pay whatever the copay is mm-hmm. on their plan. And Again, if the rest of that cost is coming out of a risk pool of money that yeah. I've already gotten access to to manage their care, and mm-hmm. I want them on that medication because it gives them these better outcomes, then why can't we pay for that? Right. I just, there's so the bureaucracy again, and how many layers and how many rules there are is still mm-hmm. prohibited, and so it's like, man, like. I got to figure out somebody somewhere that can help us with that. <laughs> yeah, because. Like also the translation, because I work with a lot of surgeons, is similar on a surgery side. Like if you, we deal with denials, same with you all of the time. So if you know something has a better outcome and you can justify it, especially on a data end, then that actually could be so much better on a value-based care model. When I think we have an opportunity in Medicare, in the Medicare space to do it because they don't jump plans all the time. So yeah. the problem with getting a patient, getting a, a commercial payer to pay for a 30-year-old to be on something preventative or long-term like that is that the patient changes insurance so much that that plan doesn't get to see the benefit years later. Yeah. But in Medicare, most people are there for the duration of their life. And so the investment by the insurance company up front to do that for a patient actually does show the benefit. So that's the other thing is it's a different timeline. It's a different model. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good point. Like in general, do you see other issues on a value-based care on a commercial care model? Well, it's interesting. I think the next frontier we're in, we've done well in Medicare right now, but the next frontier is going to be going direct to employer, I think. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you know, what is the number one cost for any large employers healthcare for their employees? And it's going up what 10 to 20% a year. Yeah. So if, if we can, if we can, through figuring out the data, go to a large employer and say, hey, we'll take care of your 5,000 employees and their families exclusively at community health care or in whatever entity and joint venture we're in um, for X amount of dollars per patient per month. And that's it. If we go over that, that's on us. So we're at risk for that. Yeah. And if we go yeah. under it, again, just like with Medicare, we can keep the savings and use it to reinvest in our care for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's the end game. Because it, that's where, like, all of a sudden you change communities. Because yeah. Yeah, I'm, I grew up in a blue-collar steelworker family on one income. My parents worked their butts off for us. I was the first one to go to college. And so I have a huge heart for how do I help steel mills and um, you know, teachers unions and uh, the police department spend less on healthcare because it helps those families. It helps them hire more. It helps them get people raises. Yeah. Um, that's where you can really change communities, I think. And I, there's already, you know, Agilon's founder is already looking at different companies to do that in the employer and commercial space. It's already here in our market. I think we need to get there. Um, but that's where value can be really put on steroids as well. 
Yeah. And the direct to employer model, I actually was just chatting with um, a CEO of what started as an IOM company, Neural Monitoring. And they realized very fast because that's a fee-for-service and it's an out-of-network fee-for-service. Mm-hmm. And they realized really fast if like they want to play in this space and help their surgeons, like they've got to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So they're based out of Texas and essentially did that. They built a value-based MCK, MSK all into direct-to-employer mm-hmm. because yeah. now they can control the neural monitoring. They're starting to control the hardware so that those costs are substantially down and right. essentially building out that model. Right. And if you can do that, like I said, it's, 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 it is a game changer because you're, if you can stabilize a company's healthcare expenditures, it changes their business as well. Yeah. 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 It's really Absolutely. exciting to see what can happen, um, you know, and starting even if with Medicare and primary care and just having these conversations of what's possible and then building it out into employer stages. I think that's really exciting for what healthcare could become. Yeah. And I think like the important thing is too in healthcare is for the individuals doing it to talk about it more. Mm-hmm. And because usually healthcare is siloed, especially in a hospital end where I feel like that's always been one of the downfalls of healthcare and yeah. other mm-hmm. businesses, like you're shouting it from the rooftop, you're mm-hmm. like doing mm-hmm. things and all of this, but healthcare yeah. is a little bit slower to like yeah. broadcast and collaboratively share all of that information. It is. And I think, you know, there's a lot of different reasons for that. I, I, we, we were able to hire a doctor who was already, who had been working for a large hospital system in, right in our market, right in our mm-hmm. neighborhood. And after starting to work for us and learning our model, he was like, you know what? Like, I think it's crazy that I've been working here for 10 years and I didn't even know this model existed in our market, let alone that you were here. And I, I said, yeah, that's to your point. It, there's not a lot of ways for us to communicate if there's all those silos up for sure. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, how do you think healthcare improves that? I don't know. I think we've, it's what's hard is value-based care is helpful for certain types of providers and it's threatening to other types. And think about large hospital systems. They're, business model is to have people in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And my business model is to keep people out of the hospital. Right. And so there, <laughs> there's a tug of war. Yeah. And so for me to, you know, and here's the thing, I want those hospitals to be partners with me, mm-hmm. not competitors. Yeah. Because I need them. My patients need to go to the hospital. They need yeah. surgeries. Yeah. They need care. If they get sick, they need to go there. I want to have great relationships with those hospitals so I can c- collaborate with for our patients. But so for me to trumpet from the rooftops to all of their doctors, hey, my model's great. Come do it. <laughs> you don't have to see 30 patients a day. You're pet your cap. We have nurses to help you. Like I don't want to go in and, and do that. Now does, do we get to that? I don't know. But there's, those relationships are valuable. I don't want to trample those. I think no one does. The hospitals yeah. need and want to work with us. And so it's, yeah. you're right. It's kind of like this, how much can I do? How much can I do? Yeah. 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 I think just conversations in general are just necessary to be had. Like just said, just the ability to talk about what's happening in a different environment, I think is just necessary too. 
just yeah. for awareness because those uh, little seeds that you're planting for resistant people, this is always the way it's been done. We can't change it. It plants something in their brain of like, well, maybe maybe it's possible or why isn't it possible for me? I just think talking about it sometimes is the best way to start planting seeds for change. Yeah. So yeah, and I think, this- yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I think awareness too, because like Mm -hmm. even shouting it from the rooftop to hospitals, okay. Mm -hmm. But if more just consumers Mm -hmm. knew about all of these successful models and they didn't have access to it, Mm -hmm. that almost creates a natural demand. That's amazing because you're right. It isn't just talking about a healthcare provider to provider, but it's awareness from a patient standpoint. Yeah. 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 It's like other businesses. It's storytelling marketing and yeah. storytelling like capturing and you all of have, that. It's pretty regular practice in our in community healthcare for new patients. After a few months, like they have a, their first visit, whatever, it's fine. We do our thing. But let's, that first like episode where they're sick and they call in and someone goes to their house from yeah. our practice or they get admitted to the hospital and one of our hospital-based nurses tells them, hey, Dr. Steinick knows you're here. Here's my card. We're going to follow up. Like that extra care that we can give that yeah. the regular doc on the corner without these resources can't give. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get that like, holy crap, this is different kind of thing. Yeah. From the patients, And we like this. So, yeah, it, but it, you're right. Right now it's just because they experienced it, not because yeah. they sought it out. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that it was there. So I think, and that's the hard part too, is trying to, again, with our growth, we're, we're bursting at the seams with how many patients we have. It's, mm-hmm. it's being able to grow big enough to service our community again, but with the right people and the right docs that are yeah. doing that. And yeah. so that's the big tug of war that we're playing with growth mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And I want to touch on that because Becky also said that you had like 70 like physicians that you attracted on a hiring end. Or around no, I think no, uh, seven. I think she, yeah. <laughs> oh, seven. Okay, I heard seven. <laughs> yeah. no, I was we, gonna be like, "Wow, that's amazing for Ohio." <laughs> no, but well, seven for us was a lot because yeah. Um, yeah. you know it's we can't recruit based on geography, <laughs> so <laughs> people aren't coming to my practice because we're on a beach. Or, you know, yeah. it's twenty-eight it's degrees out right now. <laughs> but for us to have hired, I, I believe it's seven doctors now in the last year and a half wow. um, is unprecedented for us. And it's just because I think this model is attractive and you're right. Storytelling, it's getting down and hearing me talk about it and hearing our other, you know, I'm, I'm paid, I'm the CEO. I'm supposed to be the mouthpiece of it, but when other docs that are on the ground in our offices are helping me recruit and they can tell a new recruit, like, Hey, like, what he's saying is really happening here. Um, yeah. You know, my, yeah. my day has changed because I don't have to see 35 patients anymore yeah. and I have help. Yeah. I've got a team. Um, yeah. It's not perfect. We have days we all do, but um, overall the model is working. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's really been a great recruiting tool. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much Wait. for your time. Brandy. I was going to say, so we are well <laughs> we over, are time. Yeah, yeah, over we- time. Like, wait, didn't we want to cut it? But this was great. Um, No, it was good. And like the back end was very animated where maybe we'll just start our own unscripted version, Becky, and like (laughs) cut it in half. I was thinking, I'm like, all those times that I had these like monologues, we should cut that and just do this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, but real quick, just to wrap up, Becky, like what you said about having the conversation. That's why I love like what you guys are doing with this podcast because you're, it sounds like you're having a lot of people on that are doing things differently. And yeah. the more listeners you get, this could be another platform of people figuring out that things are changing. So yeah. keep wow. it up. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thank you. We appreciate that. So thanks well, so much. Thank you for joining us today on the Leadership Pulse. Thanks for having me. <laughs>